What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what's up? And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mark Cicchini. Wow, I got that right. That feels feels good. I always struggle with this at the beginning of You got it. But Mark, thanks for joining me, man. Let's just kind of start with quick intro of who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into the topic of QSBS. Yeah, I appreciate it, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Um, really quick intro myself. So I'm a CFP. I've been a certified financial planner for almost 10 years. And Primarily working with high net worth clients in the private wealth management space. So covering everything from, you know, taxes to state planning, investment management, deep in-depth planning um, and client service, uh, mostly in the RIA space. So, you know, kind of registered investment advisory firms all the way from kind of private boutique fee only RIAs in a regional sort of area like D.C., um, through now into a wealth tech sort of role with a company called Compound, where a Series B startup. Um, trying to create a family office for the tech ecosystem. Um, I, le- I live in Philadelphia and uh, I'm from here originally. I lived all over the country, but um, planning is a huge passion of mine and uh, even studied it back in college at Virginia Tech's financial planning program. So found it at a, a young age, but um, really enjoy helping people with money. Nice. I'm jealous of that. I did not go to a school that had I financial planning. I don't even think I probably, I don't know if I would have done it. Um, but now looking back, I'm like, man, I wish I had like that foundational, like almost CFP textbook learning. Cause I basically just had to like learn it all on the job, which I think there's good and bad to doing that. I agree. I agree. I think the CFP program gave me a ton of leg up just in terms of like knowing what I wanted to do, knowing maybe where to steer away from in my first career choice. But it was also, you know, so much academic learning that you really have to kind of not throw out, but really put aside and just switch to real world, you know, applicable training. Yeah, that, that's why I'm always like the biggest proponent of like self-learning and training with other good advisors and getting the experience. Like I I don't ever want to discount like traditional learning or the CFP, but it's always, everything's textbook learning, right? Like it's yep. good to have the textbook knowledge, but then half the time, like real life planning contradicts a lot of the things that you you almost even get taught. Exactly. I, I can't even remember on the CFP exam. I was looking back on like my one year of experience and picking out client circumstances that helped me answer questions. So it was even kind of an inverse of what you would expect. Like, oh, what was my CFP curriculum saying? It was kind of what was my client ethical situation saying in that situation? And it actually helped me answer questions on the exam, which is kind of crazy. That's super interesting. Um, okay. So I guess for everybody listening, uh, last week we did part one of this series for founders. Really the goal of this is talk about like really the most impactful tax planning moves that founders have. I think it's a little geared towards like planning to sell, um, and so this is the perfect topic. So, um, let's just kind of start off with what QSBS really is. Yeah. Great question. So really what QSBS is, is section 1202, which I love when, um, our CPAs in house start referring to the tax code with numbers. Um, but it really means qualified small business stock. So the acronym QSBS qualified small business stock. 
it's a, a section of the tax code that was meant to encourage small business investment. But now in reality, it sort of translates into this really unique tax. Uh, I hate to even say loophole, but it's really a tax strategy around um, employees and early founders of companies who qualified for QSBS. And we'll get into kind of what the qualifications are can exclude up to $10 million of capital gain on the federal side or 10 times their original basis in their company or, or their equity. So it's an incredibly powerful tax savings opportunity if you can qualify. Yeah. And which most times I'm, I'm guessing you're probably hoping to get to the 10 million because 10 times original investment in most firms is probably not going to be more than 10 million. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it can be 10 bucks. Right? <laughs> if you're if you're an early founder or somebody, you might hand your founder a dollar and say, here's my kind of purchase of my, uh, you know, of my shares. And so it can be very, very low basis sort of uh, equity. Okay. So obviously really impactful. This is a way that you can avoid paying capital gains on a lot of dollars. So I think I've seen this all over Twitter. People talk about it all the time, but I don't think people really ever take it the next step of being like, how do you qualify? What are the steps? So let's kind of start right there of, you know, how do you, how do you qualify? Yeah, great question. And I'll, I'll start with an example from last year. I had a founder client of mine who sold 1.8 million of secondary shares. So, you know, he's got quite a bit of equity his um, investor group came to him and said, hey, you know, you just raised a new round of funding. Do you want to take some chips off the table? It sold about 1.8 million. And because he had qualified for QSBS, he paid 0% federal cap gains, which, you know, if you're paying 20% federal cap gains plus 3.8% Medicare share tax, $428,000 of tax that he, didn't, that he did not have to pay, uh, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Um, but starting from the beginning, so it must be original issue shares. So a lot of companies issue options. And so if you have options, you're going to want to exercise them as soon as you can. If you're trying to get QSBS eligibility, of course, there's a lot of other considerations for should you exercise your equity. We could have a whole another podcast on that. But um, that's one of the big ones. It has to be shares, not options. A mm -hmm. lot of founders have shares right off the bat just because of the way that their founder shares are, are structured. Um, the second biggest point is it must be a, a C corporation. So your company must be a C corp at the time that they issue the shares. Uh, you know, that's a difference between S corp, C corp, LLC. There's a lot of different sort of pros and cons to doing that. Um, but that's a big one is it has to be a domestic C corp um, when they issue the shares. The third one is um, 50 million is the key number for gross assets or tax basis of gross assets in the company uh, when they issue the shares. So you know, it's it's designed for small business. You know, that's why it's called qualified small business stock. And so, um, it, as long as you're below 50 million at the time you were issued your equity and leading up to that point, then you can qualify. And then fourth, um, five year holding period is the big one. So starting that clock on how long you hold the shares um, is really key. And then the last thing is just has to be a qualified small business, which unfortunately, for folks like us in financial services, we won't ever be eligible for QSBS. Um, just because of the nature of our business. A lot of service companies are excluded from qualified um, small business definition, um, along with farming, um, you know, hospitality. There's a, a long list of excluded businesses, but most tech companies are actually eligible because they're not necessarily involved in these service businesses. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually just talking about this with somebody and we were like, okay, so we have a, a tech company that is a, a custodian. Are they a tech company or are they a custodian? Do they qualify for QSBS? And there's like all of these fine lines where like, which way does this go? Do you qualify? Mm -hmm. um, but let's go one by one here and kind of talk about each one. So you said 
qualify. First one is has to be shares, not options. I think a lot of people hear that and say, well, I have options. I don't get to, but the point that you made there that was really important is you can exercise your options and now those do become shares and then those shares can qualify. And for most people that, you know, if you, if your shares are QSPS eligible, you are probably getting a letter every single year, right? Or you're supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. And and it depends on, you know, a lot of your options might be subject to a vesting schedule. Um, so, you know, you have that kind of hurdle to get to, okay, if it's a four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff, unfortunately, you don't own those shares yet, or you couldn't even own those shares if you wanted to. Um, some companies I'm glad to see are now offering early exercise ability. So the ability to early exercise, even though you're not vested yet, which is an interesting sort of concept. Um, but that would start the clock on those shares and, you know, Carta or Shareworks or whatever your equity is sort of administered through should have all those documents and you should work with, you know, tax and investment advisor to kind of figure out, is this the right call for me to exercise even, even if I'm eligible, because it might not be right for your personal situation. And this is where the whole 83B election comes in too. And I think a lot of times, and I guess for people to know, an 83B election basically allows you to early exercise. You file this 83B election and you can kind of front pay the taxes. It's really like, hey, you know, can I pay less AMT versus letting this grow and have a huge difference? Um, But it's actually not that common. I, I think that like every, almost all the ones that I run by, unless you are a founder, regular employees, a lot of times are not given that ability to early exercise because- Half of the reason why they're giving options is one, obviously compensation. Maybe you can't pay as good as salaries because you're early on. And two, because it's an incentive to get people to stay. So if you let everybody early exercise, they can early exercise and and then just leave and go somewhere else. So I think that happens sometimes, but I think it's less common than most people probably think when they hear about this strategy. Absolutely. And it's, it's also tough when you're in kind of a hyperbolic growth company, because the longer you wait to exercise, the, the more you're spread between your grant price and your um, and your price at exercise is, is, is larger, right? You could have this different 409A maybe four times in one year if a company's exploding in growth and they're doing valuations in multiple funding rounds. Um, so early exercise is really important or just exercising as soon as you vest, right? Just because that the more that you let that 409A valuation grow, um, the more subject to bargain element you would be for ISOs mm-hmm. okay. and NSOs for that matter. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so that was number one. Um, number two was C Corp. Uh, maybe we're going out of order now, but either way, that was one I wanted to talk about. So yep. C Corp, this is the one that I almost think is the most overlooked. Um, I think people just assume, hey, we're a small business. I qualify. And then you talk to them and they're like an S Corp or they're still just like an LLC taxes partnership. This is a really big one. Can you talk about a little bit more about it into like, do companies have to start that way? Do companies end up strategically moving from S Corp to C Corp? You know, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. Some companies do start as a C Corp and it really depends on kind of what the goals are for the company, what the aspirations are, how big you think it's going to be. There are some main key differences between LLCs, S Corps and, and C Corps, one of which is LLCs, taxes, partnership and S Corps are pass through entities, right? So you're going to be passed through as a partner, as an owner, those profits, those deductions, those distributions, um, capital calls, that sort of thing, uh, versus C Corp is really a separately taxed entity and is subject to double taxation on you know their income and dividends paid to investors. There's different class shares in terms of S Corps can only have you know a certain amount of um, class shares versus C Corps and, and that sort of thing. But you don't have to start as a C-Corp. You can certainly convert to a C-Corp at a later date. And that's something you have to you know, consider with not only trying to get QSBS eligibility, but also just the goals of the business. Um, so that's a, a key difference in terms of S-Corp versus C-Corp. 
Yeah, I feel like um, the companies that you see that start as C corps are typically like, hey, we got a pretty good idea and we already have backing before we've started. So we're going to start as a C corp because this is a place to grow or serial entrepreneur. They've gone through this. They know that this is a good idea. We're probably going to be able to scale it. We're going to go through series rounds because again, nobody's going to probably be an S corp and try to go through like a series A. Um, But then there's a lot of people who get started and they don't really know that this is a big idea or something that can um, really grow to be what it is. And so they end up starting out, Hey, we're just an LLC. Great. Now we're going to become taxed as an S corp. Oh wait, this is getting bigger. Have you helped anybody or worked with anybody that's moved from S corp to C corp? I personally have not had anybody how to do it yet, but everything I've ever heard is it's not as easy as you might think. I mean, you really have to dissolve the S corp first, right? Yeah, I haven't personally helped anyone directly, but I know, you know, as, as you've seen on, on Twitter and everything, S-Corp is such a popular sort of concept because of, you know, reasonable compensation and then everything else being partner draw, um, being able to kind of avoid FICA taxes on that partner draw. But I think that being sold as the only reason is to switch to an S-Corp is obviously not great. And you want, you want to be at a certain level of income too. It's mostly for sole proprietors and maybe even partnerships. But I think the the decision to convert to C-Corp, you have to be really careful that it's the right way to go. You're going to have to pay, of course, probably tax and legal fees to do so. And, you know, make sure that that's the right thing for your business at the time. It does make it way easier to invest, or I'm sorry, recruit capital to your point. You're not going to be an S-Corp going to VCs and trying to raise capital. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So we've gone through, it has to be stock, um, has to be a C-Corp. Well, I guess piggybacking off this, so the five-year rule. I think, yeah. again, this is something that is overlooked too. So, hey, wait, what? We have to be a C-Corp. Great. Let's move to a C-Corp. We're about to sell. Uh, that doesn't work as much. Is the five-year time frame like a rule? Is it just kind of like a, hey, you know, this is what seems to be good in the eyes of the IRS where they're not going to come after us? Um, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, great question. So the five-year period is a, is a holding requirement for full QSBS exclusion. And so, you know, at one point, QSBS was not a full exclusion. It was 50% up to a certain point. It was actually on the bill for the Build um, build Better Back um, bill and back to reduce yeah. it back to the original way. It didn't, didn't go through. Um, but it doesn't matter in terms of when you were granted it. And then the five-year holding period is a requirement to be at least subject to that 100% exclusion. If you don't meet that five-year requirement, there is still a little bit of incentive because as long as you've held it for six months and it meets all those QSBS other requirements, you can do a QSBS rollover, sort of like a 1031 exchange where you defer gain to the future. It's tougher, you know, in the sense of if I'm a founder, I'm probably not going to take my proceeds and invest in another company right away. I might, um, but is that company going to be QS eligible and is that the right play? Um, But for venture capitalists, it certainly can be an enormous opportunity for, even if you don't miss, if you don't meet that five-year requirement, you could take funds from your LP and invest in other QSBS eligible portfolio companies. And that could continue to defer your gain until eventually you pay you pay the tax. So, yeah, we were, I was just actually talking about this with a client and the hard part was they were like being bought by a business. They were going to stay on in that business. And so they looked into, can you do it? But the hard part is a lot of times the VC backed company that's going to end up buying you out is going to end up having greater than 50 million in assets. And then yep. that starts to go out the window. So it's kind of one of those things that's like really great idea, pretty perfect it's not like the most common thing to end up happening, but it's something to think through because it does happen still sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's, you know, something to be said for the nature of startups nowadays and, and small businesses, it might take a decade plus to reach a liquidity event or major liquidity event, such as a sale, such as a tender offer, 
God forbid, IPO, right, which is the ultimate sort of flexibility in just selling your shares in the public market. Hopefully they appreciate. Um, but that tends to have the five-year period not be as much of a hurdle because if you're an early employee or a founder and you stay to that company for 10 plus years until liquidity, uh, which I think on average now they say 12 years for a startup to reach a liquidity event, which is kind of crazy. Um, but that five-year period starts to become less daunting just given uh, the fact that liquidity events don't come around too often. And so this five-year rule is obviously the company has to be there for five years. Is then, hey, I'm an employee. I exercise my options. Now they're stock. Hey, I have to hold that for five years to have the full QSBIS eligibility. That's correct. That's correct. So it does apply to each individual entity. And we can talk about trust stacking too, if you want to um, go that route, which is basically you can have multiple entities eligible for this QSBS uh, exclusion, but it does apply to each individual entity. Those original issue shares or options converted to shares start a clock of five years, and that has to be met in order to exclude. So you're saying, hey, I I hit one year mark, I exercise great. I hit two year mark, I exercise great. I hit three, but it ends up being only the five year window from let's say year one and two. Great, that part of the liquidity event becomes QSPS eligible. The other parts not so much. Correct. Sort of like it's sort of like a vesting schedule where you know you you'd have to basically be there the whole time. And so each time you exercise to get shares, that would start a new five year clock, um, similar to. You know, certain How short term or cap or long term yeah. capital gains works too, right? It's just exactly. each individual thing a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Yep. Okay. You got that it. That makes sense. So the other one that you talked about here is uh great, it has to be less than 50 million in assets. So one thing that I found that confuses people and sometimes honestly even confuses me or other people I talk about is 50 million valuation and 50 million in assets are completely different. So there are companies that could have a hundred million dollar valuation, but have barely any assets and still qualify, right? Yep, exactly. It's really the it's really the balance sheet of the company is the most important thing, and especially if you're carrying assets at cost. So it's really the the tax basis of your gross assets is the technical term. Um, but if you look at the balance sheet of the company at the time, it's it's you know any property right that they own, any assets, and then any cash funding that they've gotten. Um, because you could have a ten million dollar funding round at a hundred million dollar valuation, but that hundred million dollar valuation does not equal your balance sheet. So it's really just about the assets that the company holds at the time. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think the last thing you talked about is like the, the type of company you are matters, right? And I think that's really important distinction. Um, so you talked about like service companies, you talked about like financial advisors, you talked about like hotels type of like hospitality. I think those are some of the main ones that count. But even if you don't have QSBS eligibility, that doesn't mean that you don't want to be a C Corp, right? I think like maybe some people hear that and they think like, well, the only reason I'd want to be a C Corp, you know, double taxation sucks, but most businesses that are being bought that are outside of the really small business range are going to be C Corps. Those are more attractive to buyers, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. And, you know, there's there's pros and cons, right? Like QBI, right? Which you talk a lot about online is, you know, um, the qualified business income, right? And so there's there's pros and cons. If you're not eligible for QSBS, that probably means that you are eligible for QBI, right? So there's sort of a pro and con there because if it's the rule where if if you, the um, if the main asset of the company is the reputation or service or skill of the one of the main people in the business, then you're not qualified for QSBS, but you would be Q, uh, eligible for QBI, right? Mm-hmm. That your understanding sort of of like financial services firms and RAs and that sort of thing. Well, the hard part too is on the QBI, like financial advisors and service businesses still have like the earlier phase out too than yep. a lot of the other companies. Um, so basically we kind of are just getting screwed either way. <laughs> right, um, right, right. But yeah, exactly. 
Yes. Um, okay. Anything else on this topic so far to add in? I'm trying to think if there's anything that we missed. So we talked about less than 50 million in assets. We talked about it has to be a C corp. Um, we talked about type of company. We talked about the advantage of really, hey, we're excluding the, the capital gain on this sale, which is obviously really, really impactful. Yep. Anything else that you could think of to add around QSBS? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of things. And one of which is kind of back to the eligibility of the company. I think, you know, I have a client right now who's, it's a tech startup, but they do home renovation financing, right? So it's sort of that whole issue where, you know, they're building a tech product. It's definitely first and foremost, a tech startup. They're also banking. They're also banking and financial services, right? They're not lending the money directly, but they're sort of an intermediary almost. If somebody wants to do a home reno, they can do financing through them, similar to HELOC, that sort of thing. But um, there's been a lot, they've had a lot of confusion and listened to a lot of different tax attorneys about whether or not they would be deemed an eligible business. And it's really important because there are some things you can do before, you know, sort of reporting the gain as excluded on your tax return five plus years later. One of which is just keeping a really good file record of, you know, your company's balance sheet through the years, your individual company equity as an employee or as a founder, you know, all your grant documents, your exercise dates, you know, all the evidence of um, exercise, your holding period, vesting date, all those things is really important because when you do go to uh, exclude the gain, it's almost guaranteed to get audited if you're over a certain level. So you really want to have this war chest of defense ready. Some companies go as far to say, hey, I'm going to go to a tax attorney and have them do a QSBS study on my company so that they can issue a letter of sort of saying, hey, that I've determined based on the fact pattern, this company will probably be QSBS eligible. That isn't like a hard and fast thing. Once they do that, you're not guaranteed. You still yeah. have to defend yourself in the IRS's eyes. Um, so that's a really big thing. It's just what can we do now to sort of bolster our position when we go to have our founders and employees um, sort of strive for this QSBS deduction? Um, the other thing is, you know, when you go to do um, trust stacking, so trust stacking for QSBS is when you would gift shares to a, another entity. It could be even another family member, can be your spouse because you're typically the same taxable entity, but it could be an irrevocable trust. It could be a intentionally defective grantor trust. All these different things can be entities. Yeah, exactly. Or grat. And so each one of those could actually be eligible for a $10 million exclusion if set up the right way. And if they all meet this sort of holding period requirements that we've discussed. Okay. So that's like a, Hey, you, you have a lot of equity or this is a really big business and you still have a pretty good percentage. Here's a way to avoid even more tax. Exactly. And you'd have to weigh that with your own estate planning sort of, you know, goals. And objectives. this is where you pay the six figure bill to the estate planning attorney. And it definitely is something <laughs> that is well exactly. worth the investment of doing that. Exactly. And, and it typically is for companies that you, you are, either confident or you're already an ultra high net worth client who's kind of surpassed that sort of estate tax limit, uh, exemption limit, or you just know the company has a shot at being a, a moonshot, right? A, a 50 to $100 million windfall event for you as an individual. You want to immediately start kind of planning for that potential trust stacking exercise. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I've also noticed that you did talk about too, that like not every state um, uh, conforms to the federal QSBS exemption. Yeah. Um, is let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So with working with tech ecosystem, a lot of our clients are California based. And so that's a, a big yeah. example of California domicile um, clients because California um, tax code does not recognize QSBS and does not conform the same way that the federal does. Um, it can be eligible for a partial exclusion, but we won't get into that. 
basically you want to be really careful of just saying, oh, I've sold my shares. I, I'm going to pay no tax. You might pay no federal tax if done the right way, but you you might still be subject to California tax. That's the most likely scenario is you will be subject. And that could be as high as, you know, 13.3% um, yeah. for personal. So that's a really big sort of flag to watch out for and just planning for that tax liability. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Anything else on this topic that you can think of that we haven't talked about? Yeah, one of which is just how do I claim it, right? I think some people think the um, the claiming process is really complicated, and it's actually really not. It's the same Schedule D or, or capital gains and losses that you would report any sort of sale of stock or business or property. Um, you simply file it, and then there's a code where you exclude it under um, under the Schedule Schedule D gains and losses. And really, that's as simple as it is. You just make sure that whatever system you're using or CPA knows to ex completely exclude the gain from tax on your tax return. And then you just have to wait and see if the IRS sort of audits you. Because if you sell something for 10 million and you report zero tax, they're probably going to flag that in their system and make sure that you can defend yourself, um, you know, with documentation and all the things that you need to do. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's a really good way to add in. I think one last thing that I want to talk about before we kind of wrap up, because it's kind of interlooped in here is the 83B election. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to... I mean, they're just really connected. A lot of people who are, you know, going for QSPS are also going to be taking advantage of that as well. So tell everybody what really is the 83B election? Why is it attractive? Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So 83B election is basically an early exercise um, sort of notification to the IRS that says, hey, I've exercised my options and I'm going to sort of stop that, that, um, that momentum of taxation, right? Because when you're when you have equity compensation, you might be taxed at different points in time. Um, typically, not a grant, but definitely could be at exercise and definitely could be at sale. And so, when you do an 83B election, which informs the IRS, you have to do it within a certain time frame. But you exercise your shares early or your options early, and then you inform the IRS that, hey, I've already done this. I'm going to pay the tax now if there is any tax due, and then you're not taxed again until the eventual sale of that share of equity. So it's a really powerful sort of tax planning opportunity. It's not relevant to every piece of equity. It's not relevant to every person, um, but it's really an early exercise and an early paying of the tax liability if there is one. And you're sort of setting your basis um, so that you won't be taxed again until you sell or dispose of the uh, of the shares. Yeah, typically time frame is like 30 days yep. of the grant date on those options. And the reason why this is so attractive is I'll just use an example of, hey, I got, you know, 10,000 shares at a dollar to exercise, right? Okay, hey, year one, we might be at 250. Year two, we might be at $5. Year three, we might be at $10. Year four, we could be $25 a share. And so what happens is if people wait, which sometimes they do, right? Like sometimes we're like, hey, we're pretty early. Yeah, we're growing, but are we ever going to have a liquidity event? Because if I buy these shares or exercise these shares and we never sell, it doesn't matter that we're growing. We have no liquidity event. I basically, nothing good comes out of it. So some people say, hey, I'm going to wait. And because I don't want to risk those dollars. But yeah. what happens is if you wait and now it's $25 a share and you exercise, you know, 10,000 shares, you have a $24 spread. So, hey, that's what, $240,000 difference here. You're going to probably have a lot of AMT, which is taxed at 26 or 28%. Yep. That is something a lot of people don't want. So they say, hey, great, I'll early exercise, I'll file this 83B election. I will now the spread, maybe it's still at that dollar. You really have no difference. So now there's no AMT and then you can wait and sell later down the line. You're still going to have capital gains unless they're QSBS eligible, but you can basically help set it up. So you don't pay a lot of AMT. Um, yeah. The thing is one, I find that very few people know about it Two, 
a lot of times you're not given it, but I guess the other option is um, if you have restricted stock, which sometimes the founders or you know, the very early on people are like, hey, you're given restricted stock you, because you're a founder. You don't really have to go and exercise. It's the same thing. You, you can still file the 83B election right there, front load taxes. Um, but yep. something that you want to think about, I was literally just talking, some girl was messaging me in my DM saying, hey, we filed an 83B election, we thought. We sent it to the IRS. We don't have any receipts of it. We didn't ask for a second one. And the company is worth like 25 million after a year. And she owns 33%. And so wow. her tax attorney is saying, hey, there's a really good chance here that you're going to have to pay tax based on a $25 million valuation on 33% after one year. She just graduated college. Wow. And yeah. Okay. You have no assets. You have nothing on your balance sheet. You have no real way to borrow this. And you might have multiple million dollar um, payment plan to the IRS. And who knows if this company is actually ever going to have a liquidity event like the hope is. But a lot of times I think when people realize they hear a $25 million company, sometimes you're a $25 million company because of an idea, an idea yeah. that hasn't even been put into practice or hit a product market fit. It's just a good idea that has promise. Yeah. doesn't mean that it's going to end up winning. And so that's a scary situation. And, and reason why one in the A3B election, you have to be aware of it Two, you, the clock is so short. Like, it's not like you get to say, Hey, I didn't know about this IRS. Can you please give it to me? They'll never do that. Yep. And again, that is why you have to file. You have to send it to the IRS. You have to ask for a copy back that's stamped and you have to keep good records because you don't want to be in that situation. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect example of something where there's no guidebook that the IRS gives you. Um, and oftentimes your company doesn't give you, unfortunately, there's, you know, a lot of startups don't have a, a HR department or an equity guidance department that says, hey, here's exactly what you should do in your individual circumstances, or even kind of information about this, which is a shame. We're trying to change that. But I think you have to be a self-starter and understand sort of what circumstance you're in, what your company is, what their eligibility might be. Don't be afraid to ask your boss or your founder sort of what the fundraising history was or what kind of they have incorporated the business if they don't give that to you, that's sort of a red flag, you know, neither here nor there, but they should be pretty forthcoming with that sort of info, depending on, you know, the nature of the of the question. But um, it's, a, it's a good example of you have to be a self-starter. No one's going to necessarily tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Mark, it's time to file your 83B election. Um, of course, if you have good financial counsel, that helps uh, a little bit, too. That was going to be my point here is like, I think sometimes people early on think like, oh, do I want to hire a financial planner? Is that going to be a cost to me? When in reality, the, the reason of hiring these type of people are because they're going to help you not only make the right decisions, but avoid these massive mistakes. I mean, anything on this QSBS side, like, hey, if you don't have a financial planning team that's helping you understand and realize like you should be a C-Corp as you set this up, why tax benefits, et cetera, that could be millions of dollars more in tax that you could have avoided. And same here on when to exercise, how to avoid AMT or just to plan around it when to not have a surprise on the tax bill. Like those are things that are worth hiring out and figuring out because I talk to financial planners all the time that do this, that don't even understand it. And they've been doing it for years. You're not really expected as like a startup employee who's maybe really good over here to understand all of the tax planning and the tax benefits and exercising and all of that, that comes along. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. It can be a life-changing event, you know, for better, for worse. And so it's always good to be as proactive as possible. The worst thing you can find out is, Hey, I'm not QSBS eligible or, Hey, doing the 83B is maybe not the biggest game changer for me. And I don't have the capital to exercise or whatever, whatever it might be. Right. I think there's so many different circumstances. Um, but for the most part, being more prepared than less prepared is going to lead to a better outcome. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mark, well, thanks for coming on, man. I think this was really awesome. You did a great job explaining QSPS. Um, before we go, where's the best place for everybody to engage and follow with you? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for having me. So the best place uh, on Twitter is at, at Mark Cicchini. So at Mark, C-E-C-C-H-I-N-I. Uh, and then on LinkedIn, same name. And also with compound.com uh, is our website. And uh, we have a product. So we're building that in-house as well. It's more of a sort of net worth dashboard and equity model simulator. Um, a lot of great features there, but um, they can also find me in my Twitter DMs or LinkedIn DMs or mark at withcompound.com. Perfect. Is that um, tool you're building only for clients of your guys's firm or can people then choose to use it? Yeah, great question. So if you request access, we're going to kind of do an exercise in terms of whether or not it'd be a good fit. A lot of times you can still use the dashboard afterwards, um, but we go through kind of the, the paces in the beginning to see whether or not you'd be good for advisory or whether you'd want advisory. And then after that, you can use the product afterwards, which is really a nice thing for free. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. We will see you back next week for part three. Thanks again, Thomas. Appreciate it.